last week, what Pastor Seth did is he walked us through the first part of chapter 2, and what we saw there was this call for us as believers to live in selflessness and humility following the example of Christ. And what that does is it leads us today into this passage where now that we really understand and we've rightly positioned ourselves in light of who Christ is toward him and toward other people in the body, what it does is it leads us into understanding how we ought to seek to grow in Christ-likeness and obedience. So let's go ahead and read the passage together this morning. We're going to read the whole thing at once, and then we'll go back through and take a closer look. And what I, I believe we will see today in the Bible as we come to this passage is that there are two, really two important aspects of our growth as believers in Christ. And from that growth, there are two fights that we must engage in as part of that growth. So let's read together Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So the first point I want us to see this morning as we go back through and look at this text is that growth in Christ, growth is both corporate and personal. What do I mean by that? Take a look back at verse 12 with me. Paul has just finished telling the Philippians to live in humility and consideration for one another. He's told them to have the mind of Christ and to follow the example of Christ's selfless sacrifice for us. And therefore, in light of that, because of the recognition of who Christ is and what he's done for us, verse 12 begins, as you have obeyed, so not only as in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your salvation. Now we'll touch on what that means in a minute, but I don't want you to miss what Paul is saying here. First, listen church, there is no growth in Christ or Christ's likeness without obedience to Christ. There's no growth. You don't grow in your faith outside of obedience to Christ. Your love for Jesus, your obedience to him, your knowledge of his word, your ability to live according to the spirit, your killing of sin and your pursuit of holiness will never develop outside of obeying Christ. Never. And what that is so challenging to, to do and why that's so challenging to do is because we live, especially now, in a culture where the word obedience has an incredibly negative connotation. Have you experienced that? Nobody likes to hear the word obey, and it doesn't matter if you're 12 or 20 or 80. That word in our culture has a negative connotation. So when we think about obedience as people, as a society, it's not usually a positive thing. It's a limiting thing. It's a preventative thing. Do what I'm asking you to do or else you'll be grounded. Students, any of y'all ever hear that? Mm-hmm. Parents, you ever say that? <laughs> right? 
follow these rules or else you're going to get hurt. Obey these laws. Don't disobey the law or else there will be punishment. Now, that's not all bad, right? If we didn't have those kinds of rules, those kinds of expectations, those kinds of things in place, our society, our lives would fall apart. We need those kinds of calls to obedience in our homes, in our society, in our workplaces. But just as there is a type of obedience that relies on compliance to avoid negative consequences, there's also a type of obedience that relies on compliance so as to gain benefit. It's not an or else type of obedience. It is a so that type of obedience. What do I mean by that? How about this? Hey, finish the food on your plate so that we can all eat dessert. Start this project or do this work so that I can pay you. So that you can put money in your bank account to go out and buy dessert for after dinner. Extend apologies and forgiveness to your spouse or to your parent after an argument so that you can restore peace in a relationship. So as we look at this passage, and honestly, as you consider your own relationship with Christ, do you look at obedience as an or else kind of thing? Do you look at obedience as an or else kind of thing where you're constantly looking over your shoulder for the consequences of what will happen if you struggle or fail? Or do you look at obedience as a so that kind of thing where you recognize that your willingness to obey is ultimately giving you an opportunity that is greater than what you currently have? There's a big difference, and that's critical for us to wrap our minds around. Otherwise, the calls to obedience that we see in places in Scripture like this will come across as limiting and preventative instead of liberating. And I believe that's how we as believers are to approach obedience, that we look at it and go, this is a liberating and freeing thing. And without obedience, there's not growth. So what do I mean by saying that growth is both corporate and personal? Well, if you look in verse 12, we see that Paul has an expectation that whether he is there or not, the Philippian church is going to pursue growth in Jesus. Do you see that? My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he expects of them that they, in their knowledge of who Jesus is, will want to pursue obedience to him. But he also recognizes that when he is with them, it is a motivating factor for them to pursue obedience. There's both an expectation of individual obedience and an expectation that when other people are around who know you, who love you, who have walked with you, who want you to be more like Jesus, that it will compel you toward obedience as well. In fact, the last three verses of this this passage are really Paul rejoicing in the fact that because of one another's faith, there should be encouragement and rejoicing. And what all of that shows us is this beautiful interdependency that exists in the body of Christ where we pursue growth in Christ individually, but we're also encouraged and expected toward growth by those around us. That's part of the reason, church, that we want you to be involved in a community group here at C3 because you need other people in your life. I need other people in my life who can lovingly encourage me to pursue Jesus. 
who get to know you and me well enough that they can commend us when we do well and help correct us when we fall short. And that correction is not a sitting around and figuring out how to make us feel bad for the things that we've done. Remember Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. When we sin and we fall short as believers, our aim and our motivation is not to condemn. To condemn. It's to correct and to say, hey, you're missing out on so much more by not walking in fellowship with Jesus. How can I compel you, brother? How can I compel you, sister, to pursue what is ultimately greater than what you've settled for? How can I encourage you, brother? How can I encourage you, sister, toward Jesus? Because you've missed it over here. And I want so much more for you than that. Listen, if no one in your life knows you well enough to speak to the state of your relationship with Jesus and how it's going, then that's a problem. If nobody in your life knows you well enough to be able to speak to your relationship with Jesus, that's a problem. And if the people in your life who do know you well enough don't speak to your relationship with Jesus, it's either a sign that they're not growing in Christ and not going to call you to account for something that they themselves need to be called to account for, or it's a sign that you don't handle correction well. <laughs> or, or both. It can be both things. The reality is, church, in our culture, in our individualist, autonomous, if you don't agree with me or applaud me, then you must hate me kind of culture, this dynamic is going to become more and more difficult, but we need it. I really believe that it's essential for us, if we're ever going to be the kind of church if we're ever going to be the kind of people who are the aroma of Christ to the world around us, that we must be willing to hold one another to the expectation of growth. We have to pursue growth and obedience, and we need to encourage one another toward it. Because if we don't do that, we are missing out on so much more. But there's another component to that growth and obedience. That's the personal aspect, right? That's what we see at the end of verse 12 and verse 13 where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which brings us to our second point. Growth, really the the personal aspect of growth is God perpetuated and self-motivated. What do I mean by that? What says, if you look in verse 12, we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's the self-motivated piece. Fear and trembling is not a matter of being afraid. It's a matter of being reverent. It's working out our salvation with awe toward the one who ultimately gave us our salvation, and that's key. And notice that it's working uh, out our salvation, not working for our salvation. Uh, When I was 14, one of my friends uh, who I had known since I was seven uh, decided that he was going to take up weightlifting. And so he said, hey, man, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to go start lifting weights at the, at the community gym. Uh, I want you to come with me and start lifting weights too. And so most days what would happen is after school, I'd get home, I'd eat a snack, I'd run over to his house. It was about half a mile away from mine. Um, and then we'd run another half a mile from his house up to uh, the small community gym in our neighborhood to lift weights. And as you can tell by my physique, I've clearly maintained that discipline over the years. Um, you can come and ask me for workout tips later. Actually, don't. Go and see the Snells over here. All right? Um, so most days, it was just him and me at 3 o'clock in the afternoon 
in this tiny community gym. And so we would go up there and we'd be doing our reps and, you know, working out and, and just having a great time. And, and I, we didn't even really know what we were doing. And so one day this head trainer at the gym pops in and he's maybe mid-20s. Dude is ripped. And he's just like, hey, uh, you guys want some tips and pointers? And I'm sitting here going, if I can be as jacked as you, you can tell me whatever you want, man. All right? Because I have no idea what I'm doing. And so he sits down and he walks us through some of his favorite exercise routines and he talks with us about proper technique and everything. And he finally gets to the end of the workout. And I'll never forget this, but he said, hey guys, the only difference between you and me is that I've been working these muscles out for 10 years longer than you. You've got the abs, you've got the pecs, you've got the biceps. The only difference is you haven't worked them out. Everything that you need to look like me is there if you'll just use it. Stuck with me, but not in practice, right? Church, when we come to a passage like this, we have to understand we've been saved by Christ. You have what needs to be exercised. It's bound to you. It's part of you. You just need to work it out and put it to use, right? Growth won't happen independent of you putting in practice and training of what you've come to know of Christ. And you have an example, as I did in my physical regimen, you have an example of the character physique that you're trying to emulate in Christ. That's what Paul detailed for us in the first part of this chapter. He says, look, your example is Christ. You want to know what you're working out toward. It is exercising the commands of Scripture. It's exercising what you know of Christ that you might be more like him. He's who we're aiming for. And here's the good news. You're capable of working out your salvation and empowered to be able to do so because of what verse 13 says. For it's God who is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that mean? Well, that's the God-perpetuated piece. Church, part of Christ's saving work in your life is shifting the allegiances of your heart so that you want to obey Christ. He works in you so that your will is motivated to obey him. He works in you so that your work is now oriented toward pleasing him. You're not left to figure this out on your own. You don't have to spiritually white-knuckle it and go, I just hope I'm doing the right thing because I'm out here on my own trying to make this work. This isn't a foreign concept to Scripture either. Paul says this same kind of thing of himself in multiple places. Colossians 1, 29, Paul will say, I labor for this, striving with his strength that powerfully works in me. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace within me. Church, we can take comfort in knowing that while we are commanded as believers to work out our salvation in a life of so that obedience toward Jesus, we do so with the supercharged benefit of him working in us to make that effort possible and effective. As we've already read in chapter one, we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. There's no perfect analogy for this. There's no easy way to describe it, but the way that I think about it is like having a tailwind behind you as you go through the effort of 
life. The thing behind you is compelling you forward in the same direction that you're going and in a way that makes it more effective and sustainable than doing it on your own. So what do we do then with this truth? That we are to grow corporately, that there's an expectation of corporate understanding and encouragement toward growth? What do we do with the fact that there's an individual component to this of working out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Well, that's what we see starting in verse 14. Certainly there's more to a life of obedience than what we're going to see in this verse, but at least here the Bible gives us two fights that we're to engage in as we press forward in obedience. And the first one is this, fight against the worldly pull to be disgruntled. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 14 and 15 with me. There it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, One of my favorite uh, TV commercial characters is Captain Obvious from Hotels.com. You know, the guy with the, the big hat and the big red jacket. Maybe it's the dad in me that all of a sudden finds grown-worthy jokes really awesome uh, or just one-liners in general, but Captain Obvious is hilarious. And so I recently stumbled across the fact that he has a Twitter account that's been set up for his character, and it really didn't disappoint. So some of the tweets, just to pull out a few for you from the last few months, that I found particularly funny, and if you don't find these particularly funny, that's fine. My wife doesn't understand my sense of humor, and so that's okay. Um, So one of the things he said uh, that I found particularly funny was, scientifically speaking, the reason that I'm bald is because I don't have hair, which I can relate to. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Fill you on that one. Or did you know the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, got its name from the little-known fact that it is actually 12 days from Christmas? Thank you, Captain Obvious. Or this one, did you know that people who stand in line for Black Friday doorbuster deals are the same people who clap when airplanes land? Got it. The reason his character and the reason that the idea of a Captain Obvious has been in our culture for so long is because sometimes you just have to say what needs to be said. Sometimes there's just a thing out there and you can just speak about it very plainly and it is what it is, right? And I think that's what you see when you look at the beginning of verse 14 here where, where Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing or grumbling or complaining. The obvious reality is that there's no reason to say that unless that's actually a thing that we might struggle with, right? There's no reason to tell us as believers, hey, don't grumble and dispute unless as believers there's a likelihood that we're going to grumble and dispute, Right? So why say that? I think the first and most immediate answer to me is because the path of obedience that we were just told to walk on isn't easy, is it? The path of obedience in Jesus is not easy. We've been called to it. We're expected to walk in it. It brings about joy and life and goodness. It is worth pursuing, but it is not easy, right? Jesus says, hey, if any of you wants to come after me, guess what? He doesn't say, it's going to be a cakewalk. He says, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross, which is an instrument of death, and come after me. That's his expectation. He knows it's worthwhile, but that's what he calls us to. 
Listen, discipleship is hard. Discipleship is hard. Waking up in the morning and opening up your Bible instead of opening up your phone and scrolling through your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed or your email is hard. Choosing to sit down with your kids and open up your Jesus Storybook Bible and teach them about Jesus after it's been hard and you've had a hard day and you're angry at them and you've screwed up so many times as a parent and you feel like a hypocrite for trying to teach them about Jesus, that's hard. Giving generously out of the overflow of your money when you're looking at your bank account and it's already tight anyway, that's hard. Serving faithfully isn't fun. Sacrificially loving your parents, students, that's not easy. Sacrificially loving your spouse who's a jacked up, broken sinner just like you, that's not easy. Loving your kids isn't always joyful. We're not singing kumbaya and hallelujah around the family table every night, are we? Confronting sin in your life, resisting temptation, feels like death. That's the analogy that's used most often in Scripture when it talks about sin put to death. So it feels like death, especially if you've got a pet sin that you've been holding on to that you can't get rid of. It will feel like you are killing something in order to obediently follow Jesus and run from that. Right? Obedience may be right, but it's not always rewarding, is it? And then you've got the world around you. All you got to do is wake up and look at your phone or open up your computer or listen to basically anyone anywhere and find people who are complaining about politics or sports, especially in Houston right now, weather, their families, their jobs, social issues, what they read in the news. Listen, it is very, very, very easy to focus on what is wrong than what's right. Have you experienced that? And when we as believers lose focus on what matters most, we can easily devolve into patterns of grumbling and complaining about anything and everything. And very few people around us will question why we're doing so. But the Bible says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Why do that? Because verse 15, verse 14 and 15, that we might be blameless and innocent among a twisted and crooked generation, that we might be lights among those walking in darkness. Listen, church, if the world around us and the life that we are living in it is as good as it gets, it's really easy to complain when things go wrong, right? If this life that we're living in Magnolia, Woodlands, Conroe, Texas, with our family, our two and a half kids, our SUVs, if that's as good as it gets then when things go bad, it's easy to just get bitter and frustrated and annoyed. But as believers, we know that we've been called to something so much greater than what this suburban life has for us, right? And when we betray our hope in that future home and that future life that surpasses the one that we experience here, and instead we join the world in grumbling and complaining What we do is we preach to the world and the culture around us a message that says, yes, your comfort, your contentment in this world is ultimately worth it. It's okay to want to be comfortable and content with what you can reach out and touch and grab in this world. Because when it goes away, life gets really bad. But that's not our aim, is it? Our aim is not to be comfortable and content in this world. 
That's hard. That doesn't preach well in America. Our aim is, as we'll see in chapter 3 next week, to consider everything a loss compared to gaining Christ. Your job, your happiness, your money, your comfort, all things loss compared to gaining Christ. So that in having him, anything that you might have in this life is just bonus. That's it. It's just bonus. You already got the prize. Everything else is merely icing on the cake. So, how are you doing with that, Chris? Well, thank you, C3, for asking me. Not great. Appreciate that. Thank you for asking me to be honest in the air of transparency. Let me just be real with you. It's hard. Man, is it hard to not get sucked into work conversations, griping about our current culture, griping about politicians and COVID and people who don't hold our world views, griping about kids and challenges they present us. If you're married, griping about your spouse, students, griping about your parents or annoying people or homework or how hard it is and how you can't even and all the rules you've got to follow. But Chris, surely you're saying I, I'm never allowed to not say anything negative or be frustrated, are you? I mean, like, surely there's a place to do that, right? I mean, yeah, of course there is. Yeah, there is freedom. Yeah, there's an ability at some point to be frustrated by things. But are the frustrating things that are happening causing your default to be grumbling and complaining? What's your default? What are you most conditioned to do when situations or seasons present sustained frustration or challenge? Do people expect that when they encounter you, you're going to be grouchy? Grouchy about what's going on in the world? Grouchy about your circumstances? Or when people encounter you, do they expect to find someone who's always going to circle back to being hopeful in Jesus. When the temptation comes to grumble, is your default to give in or to give glory to God? For those of you who are quieter, like I am, it's easy to hide behind the inner dialogue, at least if I'm not complaining out loud, right? No one will really know how frustrated I am. It's not any better, is it? Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Same people who are out there complaining loud may be doing the same thing you're doing inside. You've just told yourself that you have a filter and that somehow makes it better. And in some sense, it may get you in less trouble. But in God's economy, he's not really worried about how you're speaking versus this other person. He's concerned about your heart. And the things that come from that have to be dealt with as well. So where, where are you at? Where is your inner dialogue? What is your default? Now, what Paul says is, rather than living that way, we are called to be lights in the world. I love that this image is what God uses to describe how we're to live as Christ followers in this world because light is so attractional and different compared to the darkness. It's mesmerizing. It's inescapable. Um, I don't know how many of you guys, especially because we live in Houston, but you know, every one of us at some point in time has driven down a dirt country road in the middle of nowhere. Or if you haven't, just go down to 149 here when it's cloudy and dark outside among those dense trees, and you can see how dark it is to drive on roads out here. I mean, it's, it's nuts. We've gone down there a couple times. It's just like, wow, it's dark out here. This is crazy, right? When you're on a dirt country road, when you're driving out in the middle of nowhere, the clouds are in the sky, there's a new moon, and there's nothing 
absolutely nothing on the road and another car pops up, what immediately happens to your eyes? They immediately go to the other car and you just watch it get closer and closer to you. There's something about seeing a speck of light in darkness that you can't take your eyes off of. You've all had that experience before, right? Whether it's driving in the car or it's somewhere else, you know just the impact of seeing light against the dark. The Bible says here that the ability for us to move through life anchored in Christ and not give in to the temptation to grumble and dispute and complain is being like a light in the darkness that will catch people's attention. And so lastly, the encouragement is not just to, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, but it's, as verse 16 says, it is to hold fast to the word of life. This is ultimately the antidote to a life marked by grumbling and disputing, fighting for the light and the life found in Christ. John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 4, that in Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Church, as ambassadors of Christ, we hold fast to the word of life as lights in the world. And this serves two purposes for us. One, as it did for Paul here, it reminds us that there's a day of Christ yet to come in which we will kneel before him, and nothing really matters compared to that. So while we transverse this life, we do so knowing that the difficulties and the struggles that we experience here are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in Christ. I've already said it, but it, it bears repeating. It's hard to complain when you're focused on Christ. It's hard to complain when you're focused on Christ and holding fast to the word. The second thing that holding fast to the word of life, verse 16, does for us is this. It reminds us of our witness to the world as lights. Listen, church, if at any point in time over the last year you've despaired with where our country is at or lamented our current state of affairs, remember this. Darkness is not overcome by complaining about how stupid or illogical darkness is. Darkness is not overcome by complaining about darkness. Culture is a product of people who live in it. And so if we're looking at our culture as Christians and going, this is a dark culture, we don't like it. It's a reality of the fact that there are people in this world in our country, in our area, in our schools, who don't know Jesus and are walking in darkness. So they will create a culture and a life around them that does not look like Jesus. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Right? The antidote to that is not to be angry about it and complain about it. It's to say, Christ is the light and life of men. If we ever want light and life to be permeating the culture, and the world around us, Christ has to be in it. And if we go about our lives grumbling and complaining like the rest of the world, they will never see that there's a different option. One that is full of hope, that surpasses understanding. One that doesn't look at our circumstances and say, if this is as good as it gets, I'm out. But ultimately says, there is hope for so much more. And so for our heart's contentedness and the hope of the world around us, we fight against this pull to be disgruntled alongside the world, and we fight for the light and the life that is found in the Word. 
We fight for the light and life found in Christ, knowing that those around us need the same hope we found in Christ. There's so much more at stake here than just not being a grouchy Gus. The witness of the world around us needs to see, I believe now more than ever, that there's a different way forward through this life. It is hope in Christ, and it doesn't disappoint. Is it easy? No. Is it worthwhile? Absolutely. Can you do it alone? No. You need other people around you in the body of Christ to walk through life with you. That's why we're here. That's why you got up this morning and put on your pants and came here. If you're wearing sweatpants at home, it's fine. Thank you for logging in. I mean, this is why we're doing this, right? Because we need Christ and we need each other in order to make it through this life. And the world around us needs us to be that light in the world. So what do you do with all of this? Church, ultimately, it comes back to obedience to Christ, walking with him day by day, reading his word, practicing what his word says, growing to be more Christ-like as we walk by the Spirit, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, being a light in the world, holding fast to the word of life, doing all things without grumbling or disputing, or even as we saw last week, having the mind of Christ and considering others as more important than ourselves. These are all products of a life that is seeking to grow closer and closer to Christ. And so I want to challenge us with this, C3 family, and then we're done. What does it look like for you, knowing that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, to go home today and plan your spiritual exercise for the week that you might work out your salvation? Are there habits or distractions that you need to eliminate this week? Are there patterns of behavior that you need to apologize for? Are there disciplines that encourage growth in your life that you need to commit to pursuing? Are there people in your life that you need to invite into that journey so that you're motivated by their presence to pursue Christ? This is especially hard for dudes, which is part of the reason that doing the men's life study on Friday mornings, every second Friday of the month, is such a great opportunity. I'd encourage you to come and see uh, Panter over here, Robert Panter over here, and just ask, hey man, what does it look like for me to be in community with other guys? Just be real and be honest. Right? Are there people you need to invite into that journey? Church, no effort, listen to this, no effort made to grow toward Christ is ever wasted. It's never wasted. Right? However you feel led to do so, I pray that you would be diligent in doing it, knowing and hoping that as you draw near to God, he draws, he draws near to you, and that we as a body, as we do those things collectively, proclaim a message of light and life to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, none of this ultimately matters outside of your grace toward us. If you had not stepped into our brokenness and into our world and lived the perfect life that we could never live, there'd be no ability to work toward you. There would be no ability to live a life of obedience that is empowered by you to bring about goodness and joy and fruit in our lives. Father, we thank you that you didn't tell us to work hard so that we might be saved. We thank you that you saved us and said work out that salvation that you might have life and have it abundantly. Father, we want to be faithful people to do that. We don't want to be legalistic about it. We don't want to believe that in our effort we somehow gain your favor. 
We want to be people who work to be more like Jesus because we have your favor, because we've been saved, because you've given us what we need for life and righteousness. And in doing so, we come to taste and see more and more of you, Lord, and how good you are. We love you. Empower us as we go about this week to be the kind of people who work out our salvation fear and trembling in all of who you are, Jesus, that we might be lights to the world around us, holding fast to the word of life, lovingly pursuing what is ultimately worthwhile. Amen.